Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel. This week, it was my privilege to continue our series of messages on the Gospel of Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Let's get started. Well, good morning all. And thank you, Vicki and David. Um, much appreciate the, the songs of worship and praise and commitment. As we continue our series on the Gospel according to Mark, we have before us this morning a couple of stories, a couple of events in the life of Jesus that are recorded in three of our four Gospels. Um, Matthew and Luke also record these events, and in the same order, but in keeping with the different emphases and the slightly different vocabularies of the different human authors, they each record report these incidents with slightly different words and, again, slightly different emphases. But before we get started, let's pray. Father, I do thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we have, that so many of our brothers and sisters don't have. The privilege that we have of, of being able to gather together, of being able to have a copy of your word, the Holy Scriptures, translated into a language that we can understand. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of this world that, that they too may have access to your word, that those who are teaching them will be guided by your spirit as well. And this morning, Lord, I place myself before you, ask that you would speak through me in spite of me, that only your word may be heard here, and that we might all choose to come to you willingly, to surrender, to give to you all that we are, because you are our King. And for all of this, we give you our praise and our thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The first few lines of our passage do not paint the earliest disciples of Jesus in a very good light. They, that is presumably the children's parents, were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. Uh, to get a, a sense of what's going on, here, just remember in, uh, for example, in Genesis 27, Isaac laid his hands on Jacob and blessed him. And then later, when Jacob's deception was revealed, he also tried to pronounce a blessing on Esau. But that blessing was almost a curse. In much the same way, in Genesis 48 and 49, Jacob, now known as Israel, in turn pronounced a blessing first on Joseph and his sons, and then on his own other sons. By the time of Jesus, it had become a tradition that the patriarch of the family would pray a blessing on each of his sons, and sometimes daughters, or I understand that even today it is the custom of some Jewish fathers to pronounce a blessing on their children, usually in the form of what is now called an ethical will. It has no legal standing, but it um, provides, it's intended to provide uh, the, his offspring 
um, direction for their lives. So, these parents, wanting the best for their children, sought out Jesus to ask him to touch and to bless them. But, and then this is where things went wrong, the disciples rebuked them. It seems that these men who were closest to Jesus were trying to protect him. Now, I have no doubt that the constant pressure of the multitudes was wearying to Jesus. You remember in John 3, how he sat down on the, at the well and rested while his disciples went off to get something to eat. But that was just the point. He had come to serve. But the disciples seemed to think that children were not the kind of folk that Jesus should be bothered with. Perhaps they felt that children should be seen and not heard. And that these parents should not be bothering Jesus either with their little children. As far as they're concerned, whatever place children might have, it was not to be interfering with the more important work of Jesus. And it's interesting that these guys had been with Jesus now daily for more than two years. And they still didn't Frankly, I don't know about you, I'm a slow learner. And they didn't remember how just a couple of weeks before, in response to their repeated debates among themselves about who was greatest, Jesus had said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So it's no small wonder that Jesus responded in anger at their incomprehension. Now, that Jesus was sometimes angry might come as a shock to some of us. But look through the Gospel accounts. Look carefully and mark all the occasions where it's reported that Jesus' emotions were strong. And you will find that when he was angry or frustrated or disappointed, it was because Someone was being harmed, either through the direct actions of someone else or by their inaction. He was never concerned about himself. Remember, he prayed for those who were crucifying him. And here in our passage, it is the children and their parents who are kept being kept from the kingdom 
by these well-meaning disciples. Now, over the centuries, there's been a lot of ink spilled in trying to rightly understand what Jesus is saying here in this passage. And I think the, the most important two items are, first, verse 14, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Every Christian parent has an important role to play in their children's spiritual development. And we, as church. I've heard recently that research is now showing us that every child has an innate awareness of God. It's not that they're automatically followers of the Lord Jesus, but if we provide them with a nurturing environment, if we provide them access to answers to the questions that our society is so quick to pose, it's far more likely that our kids will develop a relationship with the God who loves them so. But I hasten to add, there's no guarantee. Because each of our children are themselves free moral agents. They make. And as I look around at our, my own sons and at the sons and daughters of so many of our friends, I realize that it is not just a matter of love or parenting style or parental devotion to the Lord Jesus, or teaching style for that matter. We have to remember that Jesus told us plainly that no one, and that includes our kids, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. But still, our example and our teaching is critically important as we seek to honor the Lord Jesus in front of our children. But in any case, and above all else, we must not prove to be hindrances to those who would seek out Jesus. Let both our words and every part of our lives demonstrate the supreme worth of our Lord and our King. I think the second important point that Jesus is making is this. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And there's been a lot of debate about this sentence too. In what ways must we be like a child in order to enter the kingdom. Now, however adorable your children and ours might be as babies, we have only to spend a few moments with them to realize the truth of original sin. By nature, they, like the rest of us, are self-centered, 
and covetous. Just try removing a favorite toy from their grasp. And you'll see what I mean. Or fail to feed them or change them at the right time. By the way, the time that they dictate. (laughs) So how are we to be like children? Well, there's one thing that can be said about every baby. Something that normally becomes less so with time. A baby is totally dependent and aware of their need. They need us to feed them, to clothe them, to cuddle them, to teach them, to train them, to socialize them. They can't do anything to please us when they're infants. Except maybe smile and gurgle a bit. And then as they age and mature, and as we continue to pray for them, we're delighted when they actually start learning the life lessons. You know, the little things like how to walk, how to talk. All the way to maybe reading the Scriptures, the Gospel, maybe things like algebra and calculus and sociology and aeronautics and whatever else. It takes a lot of work over a long time as we, both as parents and as a church, work with them. In the same way, we can't do anything to earn the favor of the living God. We are totally dependent on His compassion, His mercy, His grace as revealed in Jesus. Paul put it to the Christians in Ephesus, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Another characteristic of the very young is that they normally trust us as parents to provide for them, to protect them, to direct them. And we learn that trust very quickly because of the faithfulness of our parents. Our needs were met yesterday, so we trust them to meet our needs today and tomorrow. We who have surrendered to the Lord Jesus and to His mercy and grace at least, are at least to some extent aware of our need and of how God has acted to meet that need. But, do we trust Him to meet our need today and tomorrow? And in that trust, are we prepared to obey Him to go or to stay, to speak or to remain silent, and to use for His glory and honor the gifts He has given us in Christ Jesus. Do we trust Him? If citizenship in the kingdom is by grace, and I don't need to earn my way there, 
That makes salvation really easy. But in stark contrast with every other religion on the face of the earth, receiving citizenship in the kingdom of God has absolutely nothing to do with what we have done or what we can do. Because Jesus has already done it all. It's easier than we think. But it may also be far more costly than we realize. So Mark intentionally draws our attention next to a rich man who is about to experience just how costly the kingdom can be. We usually refer to this incident by adding a couple of other descriptors. Matthew refers to this fellow as a young man. And Luke refers to him as a ruler. So we put it all together and we speak of the rich young ruler. And by all appearances, this guy had it all. He had youth. He had material wealth. And he had influence. And yet he came running up to Jesus. Now, the gospel writers don't let us into the inner workings of this guy. They don't tell us very much about him. But I think he had heard of Jesus and liked what he heard. Maybe he'd been in the crowds while Jesus was teaching. And maybe he heard Jesus say, in Mark 8, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? And I think he was intrigued. He seems to be eager because he didn't just walk up to Jesus. He ran up to him. And that was something of an uncouth way of approaching anyone. He seems to have been reverent because he knelt before Jesus. And he seems to have been a religious man because he asked after eternal life. This fellow seems to have it all. He has wealth. He has influence. And he's still a young man, so he would have expected lots of time to enjoy it all. He seemed to be looking to make sure that he hadn't omitted anything. And so he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus offered two challenges to this fellow. The first, it was whether it was appropriate to refer to Jesus as good. If no one is good but God, is this man actually and consciously referring to Jesus as God? But then without giving him time to answer that, Jesus put his diagnostic finger on the man's heart. And asked about his obedience to the law of God, which he claimed 
to have fully obeyed since he was a child. And then Jesus, out of love for this man, gave his diagnosis and his prognosis. Diagnosis, you lack one thing. Prognosis, go sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come, follow me. That was too much. He had succumbed to a common problem and he had made his wealth his God. And in his eyes, Jesus was just not worth that much. So, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Common belief in Jesus' day, as it was in Job's, go read the book of Job and you'll see this over and over and over again, was that if you were a good person, if you are righteous before God, then things will be well with you. And your prosperity will be the evidence of God's favor. But if you are evil or do wrong, then disaster will accompany you. And this man was clearly blessed by God. He had the money. He had the prestige. He had the influence and even youth on his side. Surely his was the kingdom of God. But Jesus' diagnosis was true. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Even the largest of darning needles than for a person who is wrapped up in himself and his possessions to enter the kingdom. Now, don't try to tone down the hyperbole here. There is no evidence of a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem that a camel on its knees with no cargo could possibly squeeze through. Okay? Jesus is deliberately using extreme hyperbole here. The point is that it's simply not possible. But what is it about material prosperity that is such a danger? Well, you remember back in Mark 4, Jesus presented a parable about in which a farmer sowed seed into several kinds of soil. And he said that some people are like soil that's infested with thorns. Remember that? Jesus said of them that there are those who hear the word, 
But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The very immediacy of life in this world and its cares are distraction from eternity. And tiny actions repeated daily have huge effects. For example, we know that we should spend time, rather invest time, with our Lord on a daily basis, right? So say we make a plan. We're going to spend just 15 minutes every day with our Lord. First thing in the morning. But stuff happens. I have to take the car in this morning for servicing. I overslept. A storm blew all kinds of tree branches on the front lawn. The kids are sick. I have a major project due and I I have to spend every waking Guess what? The end of a month, how many times have we spent 15 minutes with our Lord? Maybe half a dozen times. Maybe. You know how it happens. Every one of us has had the same kind of problem. We know that we should turn to the Lord for help with our finances. But instead, we worry. And if that worry is repeated daily, guess where my relationship with the Lord Jesus is going? And on it goes. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, there are times when a slight correction will do, do the job. But there are, unfortunately, other times when it will take major surgery to correct the issue. Remember the response of Jesus to the question about the greatest command. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Go back to this man who come running up to Jesus, looking for a place in the kingdom. Unfortunately, he had only made a place for God in his heart. He was not wholly surrendered. His wealth and his status had taken the place that's reserved for God and for God alone. God, not wealth, not status, not family, nor anything else. God alone must be the chief object of our love and trust and devotion. And that's why Jesus prescribed radical 
surgery. Go sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. For this man, it all had to go. And that was such a shock, not only to this man, but to the disciples as well, that the disciples were stunned. And their question was, well, uh, who could possibly get saved? But Jesus replied, when you look at it carefully, is assurance. With man, it is impossible. But with not with God. For all things are possible with God. We can't do it. We never could. But we can't do it. But God can. The truth is that it is simply not possible for any of us to fully obey and to fulfill the requirements of the law. But Jesus put it this way on another occasion in John's Gospel. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, to Peter's credit, he began to see what Jesus was saying. And he started to present his inventory of what he and his friends had surrendered to follow Jesus. Jesus interrupted him. He said, listen guys, there is no one, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, this is no get-rich-quick scheme. As if by my surrender I'll receive a hundred times as much. But all through the history, all through the history from that day, the disciples of the Lord Jesus, who have surrendered much to follow Him, had discovered that they are benefactors of wealth beyond their imagining. Our gracious and generous Lord will provide all that we need just when we need it. So that we can do His works in ways that will bring Him the glory and the honor. 
Now, I've said before, and I'll say it here again. One of the things I love about the Lord Jesus is that he never hid the fine print. He laid it out. There will be blessings associated with surrender to him, but there will also be problems. So here, Jesus outlines the blessings and the cost. He says, with persecutions. Those early disciples and many of our brothers and sisters today, I mean, we were just praying for them, for some of them, know the truth of that saying. Many have paid and are paying for their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus even with their lives. You remember on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus warned his disciples. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The children at the beginning of our passage knew they had nothing to offer to Jesus. And received his blessing. This rich young ruler thought he had it all. But discovered that the nothing he could offer was more costly than he could manage. And he turned and walked away from Jesus and eternal life in the kingdom. So of the people we have met today in this passage, who are you most like? Who am I most like? Do we come to Him with our nothing? With our helplessness? With our awareness of our need? Or do we dare to come thinking that we can earn our way into the kingdom. In this assembly, every one of us are richly blessed. Even the poorest of us is rich by the standards of most of the world. So let's come holding our homes, our families, our jobs, our wealth in open hands that the Lord Jesus may have first place in our lives. And Father, it has been our blessing to come to Jesus today. And we do bow before Him and we recognize His goodness and we pray that we would lay our lives before Him and choose to follow Him. We thank You for His kingdom.
for the one that you brought to be king of this world. And we pray that we would choose him in our lives. Help us to spread that news to others. And we pray that we would receive the grace and blessings throughout the coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.